welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Rob, a fun sale, owner and creative director of Pleasant Company Games, a South African tabletop game publisher. His newest campaign, Ancient Terrible Things Reawakened, is in his final day on Kickstarter. Rob, welcome to the binge. How are you doing? James, wonderful to have you. Wonderful to be here, in fact. Thank you. Oh, it's great to have Now, we were just saying before we went on air, I'm going to say this for the audience. That you're you're here from South Africa. Uh, this is the first person I think I've had uh, from your continent, quite frankly, uh, on the podcast. So it's it. this is this is exciting for me because I... I just like this idea of getting to talk with people from around the world that all share the same passion, uh, man, it's so cool. And it, uh, it just, it brings me such joy in this industry when I get this opportunity. So thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. No, it's a pleasure. It's, it's nice, as you say, to see and meet people from different continents, different voices in the same industry and different ideas that sort of brought to the table. Yeah, it, it, it is cool. You know, it really is a global community. And you see this when you even go to like, uh, you know, game shows or people are going to Gen Con and, you know, this coming weekend, I'm going to Breakout Con here in Canada. And you, you'll see some faces that uh, you've met in the industry who you've only seen virtually, right? And then we see them in person. It's like, oh my God, Absolutely. you know, like, give me a hug. Gosh, you know, it's it's just this big, huge family and it's, uh, it's just uh, such joy. Um, so let's start off with talking about uh, you and, and, and your company, uh, Pleasant Company Games. You've been in this industry now for, I think, over 10 years. Is that is that the case? Yeah, that's true. I mean, we started as a a sort of offshoot of Pleasant Company Studios, which is um, my sort of animation production company. My background's in advertising, so I've oh. I've done a lot of work through the through the sort of ad industries, um, and sort of this became a sort of offshoot um, sort of sub sub brand um, to explore uh, tabletop games and and publish cardboard uh, products. I mean, I'm, I love cardboard and I love interactive cardboard, and I think. Those two things is really uh, my passion, and I think that's how it started. So yes, ten years ago was was almost to the day. Um, and in fact, this this campaign is in many ways a celebration. It's a tenth anniversary of of, mm. of that journey, um, but also re-exploring that first game that was published back then. Wow! And are you still running like the animation side of the company too? Like, is it still kind of two businesses you're running: the gaming side and then the uh, the animation studio? Absolutely. I mean, I think you yourself, as also as a publisher, are aware that I think this industry is 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 very much one of of passion and enthusiasm, and and many of us have sort of side side passions where we, you know, the tabletop games certainly it has its audience, and we have our have our core audience, but I'm still very much involved in animation and the advertising marketing side of things, um, but they do have nice crossover and parallels between the two um so for instance doing a kickstarter campaign or just you know launching a new game i i do bring to the table a lot of that experience uh, in the advertising space that's cool and do you focus mainly on the board game industry or or do you literally do animation for anything um the back well my background my deep background beyond sort of tabletop games is i sort of my i was an animation director so and mm. working very much in the advertising space so 
I, I've specialized in predominantly sort of short form commercials, um, motion identity, motion graphics, that side of that sort of space. And then a lot of 2D animation being sort of traditional hand-drawn flash-based animation. Um, and all of those sort of things actually led into my passion to tabletop games, a sort of love of um, analog, um, and analog, analog product. Um, yeah. I think board games, board games is really the kind of the ultimate analog product. It's crazy. Uh, two things I want to say. One is uh, the the fact that this is kind of like a side passion, right? And I think a lot of people in this industry, um, that's why they're doing it. They're, do they're not doing it for the money. I can tell you that. There's not many people driving Lambos making board games, right? Like it's, there's sure. usually something else they're doing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of looking at, uh, you know, transferable skills, right? And we talk a lot about sure. this in the podcast of people that have, you know, experience in, you know, whether it's project management, you know, which really helps with Kickstarters or in your case, um, you know, animation and design and things like this really play in well into telling the story, right. And, and really building that experience for the, uh, for the user. Um, often when I talk to people who are on the animation side or in the electronic side, it's almost like a natural uh, draw to the analog side, right. And to the more tactile and kind of, having that that dichotomy right of having okay over here i'm going to have the electronics and i'm going to be on a, in front of a computer screen for eight hours working and on this side i'm going to put all that to the side and i'm going to pick stuff up right things i can actually interact with on a table and um and immerse myself in that and it's almost like a different environment altogether yet they're still kind of connected which i find kind of interesting absolutely i mean the, you you talk about that tactility of picking picking items up uh, i think there's you know the haptics of of board games. You know that's that that moving pieces around and 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 certainly you know what I love is is exploring materials and and I've tried to do a lot, that a lot, especially with this new um, version of ancient terrible things of of having multiple different materials. You know, having mm -hmm. denim and wood and card and, and cardboard and and having all those sort of tactile experiences to actually play around with. Yeah, and it's cool to see innovation in this industry as well, right? Like, mm. um, and uh, I was talking with my design partner again, my brother, uh, Adam, uh, the other night, and we we're just spitballing as we we're kind of playing some games. And uh, I was like, oh, what if we did something like this, right? And what if we took something weird uh, from like another area? And, and like, what if the board was furry, for example? Like, just, just spitballing like abstract things, but... Sometimes some pretty cool things come out of that. One is we'll talk to it in a bit is uh, your your uh, your riverboat uh, being lit up, right? I think that's super cool. <laughs> so we're gonna get into that in a second too, which I think is 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 really innovative for the industry. Um, when you when you got into this industry, what what was like? There's a natural draw, obviously, with uh, in in connection with animation and, and design and things like that. But just playing board games themselves is this something that's been part of your 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 life like since the beginning, or is this something you got into later on? I think originally, I mean, when I was a sort of a young teenager, I was I was very passionate about board games, and so I'm. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a kid of the '80s, so back in the sort of back in those days, it was the sort of Games Workshop was really well known for its its sort of 2080 offshoot board games, and they had um, they had a board game called Block Mania and an expansion called Mega Mania that was based on the Judge Dredd universe. I don't know if yeah. you're aware of that that that, yeah. that IP, and it was this crazy board game where you were essentially in the sort of far future, and and you each person had a apartment block, sort of futuristic apartment block. 
And then you'd have a block war and you'd attack the other apartment block next door. And, and the object of the game was to try and get the your opponent's apartment block to sort of collapse and you would sort of set fire and then it would cause structural damage. And, and it was a very old-fashioned 80s style board game because you had to have there was lots of chits that you had to keep track of, mm. you know, spreading fire and spreading structural damage. But I loved this, absolutely loved this board game. And 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 it was hugely influential at that time when I was sort of 11, 12. And then, um, you know, life moves on and you go into high school and 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 I, I lost interest in board games and I moved on to other things. And I remember walking back into a board game store at about the age of 30, so sort of 15, 16 years later, and not realizing that board games still existed. And, and it, was, it was very interesting. It felt almost like rediscovering an old friend. That you, and, I was, and I was so amazed that board games not only still existed, that they had sort of evolved and were sort of very much alive. Yeah. And that's kind of when my passion was almost rekindled um, to to start exploring them again. And then, you know, a couple of more years passed. And at that point, I was still very immersed in in the animation field. <clears throat> um, and then uh, sort of my mid-30s, I, I took a break from, um, from that field completely. I went on a sort of a small sabbatical. I went traveling through Southeast Asia um, and traveling through sort of the Mekong area. And, and uh, at that point, it sort of all kind of, coalesced I, I suddenly realized like I've actually always wanted to make board games that's actually the field that really drives my it was a strange one it just sort of it literally kind of hit me as a as a like a light out of the the the, the clouds and yeah. I was sitting in this in this area I was sitting in this, this sort of jungle river environment and and it all kind of came together I, thought, oh, I actually want to make a, a, a sort of a jungle river Indiana Jones board game and I was, yeah. I was in the right place at the right time um, and that's kind of where it rekindled. So, so it's been a sort of 15-year journey since then, and uh, here we are now. It's is really cool to see the the emergence of of the of the hobby. Um, Absolutely. You know, when I think back to you know late 90s, uh, I think everyone assumed board game industry was dead. Right? Yeah, the gaming consoles mm. are taking off. Graphics were getting so much better on on games. They're becoming more immersive, more story based. And, and most kids were just be sitting in front of a TV. Right. And then at that time you had like your five main, um, toy publishers that controlled the industry and this whole kind of globalization when that occurred and gave people access to smaller runs and being able to work direct with factories overseas, um, that combined with the crowdfunding where people could get uh, pre-interest set up and quite frankly, prepayment for games before they actually go and manufacture it. That was the game changer, right? That took all Absolutely. the kids like you and I, right from the eighties had all these dreams of things that we would create, man, if this is my company, I would do this and I would create that or our kind of homebrew versions of monopoly or homebrew versions of risk and the different types of stock ticker and these kind of games. And now we're in a position where, Oh, I can actually go and I can go and do that. That's no longer just a dream. That's something that's very much a reality. It just takes me going and doing it, right? So I have global access now where I can go and manufacture a very small run. I mean, there's factories out there that'll make 500 games if you need to make that small of a quantity. Um, crowdfunding. Now the financial risk, although there's still some risks there in developing a game, but it's not what it was, right? It wasn't, okay, go and get a loan from the bank or go get a bunch of investors and put all the money on the table and then roll the dice and see if this is a good game. You can actually pre-test, pre pre-market, uh, pre-conceptualize with your audience to say, okay, is this something that's going to work or not? And you're going to know because they're either going to back you or they're not going to back you, right? And then you take those funds yeah. and go make the game. 
And I think that the 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 most recent tier that we're seeing of that now, um, now that this whole hobby's exploded and and you've got you know thousands of independent publishers now that are creating games and and they they keep building upon each other and reiterating and um, we're getting more uh, like innovation, quite frankly, in and you're really seeing games evolve now beyond what they were even ten years ago. But the one element I think I'd add on top of that now is also the access to talent uh, globally, mm. right? And mm. now, um, you know, even go back five years ago when I first uh, was getting into the industry, I was trying to find, um, this, you know, uh, illustrators uh, for my games. And I was going literally to local, um, you know, comic cons and, and walking the aisle where, you know, the the guys were, the, the artists that were doing um, comics and things like that and trying to find artists for, for games. And that is now no longer a regional thing either. Now it, there's Facebook groups dedicated to finding artists from around the world. And I mean, I've had games where I've had people from Colombia, I've had people from Brazil, had people from Sweden uh, working on my games, right? So now you've really got a global market you can tap into, which I think really has changed that game and make it even more accessible for people who are looking to get into the industry. Um, there really is very few barriers left, uh, I would say to, uh, you know, to, to enter if, if you've got a, a good idea for a game. No, I think you're spot on. I mean, what you're mentioning about um, the sort of Kickstarter, I mean, how seminal that has been or crowdfunding has been for the, for this industry. If you look at just the numbers on, on Kickstarter for the amount of, funds that they get in on the tabletop game category alone it's 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 very high some almost three quarters i think of their actual drivers that industry that field is directly sort of um feeding from that crowdfunding space and and what you're saying also about the the sort of uh, pre pre-visualization or kind of mvp or sort of seeing if people are interested in your product that is the biggest barrier to entry for board games is that, as you say, you could have a great idea, you could have a great artist, great prototype, but, you know, that sort of 50 or sort of 30, $50,000 that you need for manufacturing, that's a, that's a large sort of hill to climb if you don't know if anyone wants what you're making. Yeah. And crowdfunding has just completely opened that up to, to really sort of putting up what, what remember GMT, I think, did it many years ago. GMT, the game company, had something called the P500. I think they still do have the P500. And it's it's the basic concept that you you have to have 500 pre-orders um, and then you're ready to move forward. And I think Kickstarter and crowdfunding has really opened up that concept and really run with it. So now you can. You can go, well. And what's interesting about Kickstarter is, is that I, I, I was speaking to some someone recently who had a failed Kickstarter and they were very frustrated mm-hmm. by it. And, and saying, and, and I said, well, you know, the fact that it failed was was a good thing because it did exactly what it needed to do. Is that it? It you took something to pre-market, and the market responded, and you can now realize, well, something's not right, and I have to go back to the drawing board. It didn't cost you anything, yeah. Um, and you can now sort of adjust and then go back to to a crowdfunding platform. So, so it, it is a successful in that sort of that sort of level, yeah. Even the, uh, if I go back, even the, those five years ago with that first game, and I remember knocking on doors and going store to store, trying to get, oh, wow. you know, the friendly local game stores to to carry it. And what a grind that was and, and how much surprising resistance there was for local game stores to support local publishers, right? Like you would think it would be obvious that they would say, oh yeah, yeah, you're local, no problem. Let, let us, give us at least one copy, right? 
But there's such a resistance because the distributors uh, had most of these guys locked up where they're like, well, it's just easier for me just to work with my two distributors because I got a whole list of games. I just go down and just check the boxes and then the whole order arrives on a skid, right? I don't have to worry about talking to different people and things like this. Right. Well, the Amazons now of the world and the Shopify's allows you to even sidestep that and go direct to consumer, right? So there are no barriers. So if anybody's sitting back listening that has an idea for games, wow, wouldn't it be nice to do this someday? I wish I could do X, Y, Z. You can, right? You can. You just got to go. Absolutely. And, you just got to go and do it. And there are oodles of resources out there uh, to to help you get there. And I mean, I, we always talk about Stonemeyer Games on uh, with Jamie Stegmeyer on on this podcast, but StonemeyerGames.com is a library of how to go to market with your game, and it's free. You just go to his yeah. website and just start going through. And he even categorizes the blogs to make it very easy to navigate his site too. So there's really no excuses not to pursue your dreams if it's something you want to do. Yeah. And that globalization that you're mentioning is absolutely spot on. I mean, I think um, without being, I mean, I'm a case study of that. I mean, I'm a South African, you know, down here, we have a very small um, board game market. I mean, you know, I, a couple of cases would be, would fulfill the, the the orders for this, for this territory. Yeah. So, so it's very much about sort of tapping into that globalization and the, the, the potential of the internet to reach um to reach to reach markets and yeah. it still tickles me when i you know I, we run a small web store back in south africa just for promo cards and very much kind of just very collectible stuff that that gets shipped from our studio down here and it tickles me when i see us you know an order coming from peru or colombia or japan you know just the you know for the for 10 year old rob to think that one day you could actually just do a lot of that stuff off your desktop computer and and have an audience in these far flung places through the power of the internet and things like kickstarter and, and crowdfunding i think it's amazing so don't, there should be no barrier to entry i mean the only barrier to entry is really just to make a good game make or a will <laughs> or your will yeah. to do it right or your will to do it yeah and i said you certainly have to put in the many hundreds of hours to do the the project but as far as access to market goes, I think it's 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 there. Often to save people, like someone's like, I don't know how to get started. The best way to get started is to get started. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like that is is do something, anything, one thing a day. Uh, even if it's today I'm gonna make a list. Or, you know, you know, today I'm gonna watch two videos on how to do, you know, find a uh, how to how to find a uh, an artist or today I'm going to go on and I'm going to look at uh, Facebook groups that are focused on game design. Just pick one thing a day. You will find that uh, if you do that uh, before you know it, you've got a game that's, that's ready to go to market. Um, you said the game industry in, in South Africa is it was small. Uh, is it, are we seeing local like game shops show up at all? Like, is there board game cafes or anything like that there? Is that starting to manifest itself or? We have a few. I mean, I live in Cape Town, which is a relatively small town, but it's it's the sort of e economic, it's becoming the economic powerhouse of South Africa sure. because we're having quite serious loads. Uh, we're having quite serious power 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 problems here right now, but that's a very different discussion. Um, but so Cape Town itself has a few board game stores um, and a, and one or two sort of board game cafes, but you know, across the whole city, we may be looking at sort of four or five six in total so it's a very small market here it's very niche mm -hmm. um south africa is is has quite a serious sort of inequality um sort of demographic so the sort of middle class or those who can afford board games or is is, is probably only sort of 10 percent of mm -hmm. the population and then of 
that 10%, you know, those into board games might only be sort of naught point however many percent. So it's it's really is a sort of very minuscule space. Yeah. And because because it's such a small market, I think there's even a smaller market for sort of uh, indie publishers like myself, which is quite niche. This, the work that I do is it's quite uh, it's quite punk, quite yeah. punk rock, and it's sort of styling. <laughs> so it's it, it's 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 kind of a it's a very much an acquired taste. Um, yeah. Um, and though I do get supported locally, um, as far as I'm aware, I'm the only hobby game publisher in South Africa. So, so there is there is support for that um, being sort of a, a sort of trailblazer on that space. Yeah. Um, but certainly not. It's not a big enough market to to build a board game business locally. Sure. Um, and I very much rely on on the US, um, the US mainland, and and the European market. Um, for for a proper sustainable retail audience. Yeah. With this game, Ancient Terrible Things, I'm going to show the page here for the people that are watching either live or on the replay. Um, first of all, I want to congratulate you. I'm going to put this in Canadian dollars because it's the only way I can see it, but you've hit uh, $92,623 on a goal of 41000 So you've gone way over your goal, uh, more than double your goal. Uh, you still got 24, 27 hours to go. So just uh, a day left in your campaign, 1,393 backers. I want to congratulate you on that first and foremost. That That is huge. Um, you know, getting close and you're probably going to finish uh, if, if, if you don't hit it, then certainly in the, um, you know, late pledges and things like that, you'll cross a hundred thousand, which is a huge milestone. So I want to congratulate you on that. And I know that this is actually done even better than the original iteration of this game, I believe as well. Has it not? No, absolutely. I mean, look, we were picking up a lot of the audience of the original game, which was, um, which was very heartwarming. It's a ten-year-old game, mm-hmm. um, and it's a strange one because it's it's got it's it's very quite divisive. There's some who don't like the game at all, and there's some who really love this game. And so we've we've really kept a lot of the audience of the, of the, the original guys have come back, um, and and done things which are probably you know a small publisher can get away with, which a bigger publisher might ignore, which is trying to supply uh, offer upgrade packs to the to the first edition owners, yeah, which is which is a huge amount of sort of homework of trying to kind of separate a games and 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 from a development perspective, going okay, how do I kind of cut into this, try and do a new edition that I you know not be um, uh, uh, limited to what I want to do, but at the same time still bring the previous backers along on this journey and not make them feel that they have to keep buying the same game over again. The core mm. mechanic of the game has re- very much remained the same. It's sort of a some call it sort of a super super Yahtzee Cthulhu game, mm-hmm. um, but the core mechanic is 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 a great one, and I really wanted to iterate that and iterate it with the game designer. So we've sort of there's been a different iterations of this game through the years. It was a first edition, it was a second edition, there was a offshoot game called Conjure, and now this sort of folds together all the best ideas from all of those into sort of like a final definitive version of this game. Um, it definitely looks cool on the table. Uh, and I've shown some of the imagery here on, on screen. Uh, I, I love the artwork. It's, uh, it, it's, it's cool. It's, uh, and so, and as I think it was Rado runs through, I was watching his video and he did a great overview. Um, and he was talking a little bit about how you guys have streamlined things a bit from the first iteration. Um, what kind of changes did you make to this game? Or I guess first, let's maybe tell people <clears throat> what this game is like. So it's got this kind of the super Yahtzee style how have you kind of integrated that mechanic into this game? Like what, what is the core essence of, of the story behind this? 
So the game is a it's a jungle adventure, sort of Cthulhu style. I mean, I, I'm using Cthulhu, but the game is not a Cthulhu game. And, and, sure. And I've gone out of my way to make sure that it's own its own world. Um, but you're sort of exploring this jungle river and you're having various encounters with sort of villains and horrors and pitfalls and all sorts of various things. Um, and the core mechanic of the game is 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 sort of based on poker dice or Yahtzee, where you're using um, sort of five dice to create combinations, pairs, three of a kind, mm -hmm. um, runs. But what what makes it slightly different from, from sort of classic Yahtzee is the, di the dice combinations that you roll are the minimum value that you require. So for instance, if you if a card requires you to have a pair of two, a pair of dice showing two, that could be uh, two twos, three threes, four fours. So that makes the, the game quite interesting where you're trying to um, sort of up-level your dice as much as you can. Mm. The other interesting thing about the game is that um, it's... It, it, it has it has a, a, a ratchet where the, the cards get progressively harder as you get further on in the game. Um, and, and each card has a dice combination that needs to be be beaten to a points. Mm -hmm. But whether or not you beat that card, um, the, there's a matrix of dice combinations that you can use to get resources in the game. And those resources are represented by tokens and they do various things. They let you play powerful cards from your hand, um, and buy certain things from the shop. So it has a sort of resource management um, aspect to it, a press your luck management, um, and sort of a light sort of Euro flavoring to the whole thing as well. So it's it covers sort of covers all of that sort of stuff, and then it's wrapped up in a very crazy um, Cthulhu-style um, world. And uh, so what is some of the streamlining you did or changes you made from this version, uh, from the prior version? I think the core thing that we did was the the game in the previous version had these sort of six locations that you would go to and each mm -hmm. location had you would essentially do something at that location and you would go through your turn and your turn had multiple steps um, and you would get to buy things in a turn and you would so everyone had a sort of very long turn which was fine in sort of a two-player game three-player game was fine but it became the downtime became a little bit excessive in a sort of four-player game so the idea was to really streamline that to actually make all of these locations in the game that have a dual action. So very much a situation where you would go there, you would take some bonus action, and then everyone around the table gets a secondary action. And that, that kind of really opened things up where we suddenly started folding in all the various things that you would do in those phases, we'd put them onto these locations. So it became much more of a tactical action selection game. Like when you went somewhere, for instance, if you're going to buy from the shop, it's going to happen now when that player mm -hmm. goes to that location. Um, if you wanted to refresh your hand of feed cards, it would happen at a specific location when someone goes to that location. So the game has become so the, the, the number of phases in a player's turn is much more streamlined, um, and there's a lot more um, interactivity during everyone's turn, and that's really solved a lot of, a lot of the, the, the issues that I had with uh, the first edition. And talk to me about this dice tower. It is so cool. <laughs> so the the backstory of the dice tower is, and yeah. and and I have to give credit to to um, to a fan, a fan called Jonah uh, Jonah Jello. I think is is his surname. I might be correct on his surname. But during the first edition of the game, um, um, this fan posted a balsa wood dice tower that he had made to BGG of of the riverboat, and he had designed mm. this like. Because it looks very looked very different from what I finally got into, but 
but the penny kind of dropped. I never, I never really saw the dice, the, the riverboat that was in the game as an illustration. I'd never seen it as a, as a, as a dice tower until this fan posted this, 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 um, this homemade balsa wood dice tower. And I was like, oh my goodness, it does look exactly like a dice tower. And that was whatever, it was 10 years ago. Yeah. But it always sort of sat in the back of my mind. I was like, well, I must get around to designing a, a cardboard dice tower. Um, and then when this new iteration came around and we were in development on the design and the artwork and planning to do this new version, I thought the, the, this is the time for this for this dice tower. And of course, like any project is sort of metastasized and what started off as, as just a simple dice tower then just became uh, a dice tower that you could look through the windows because we wanted to make sure that you could look into the cabins of the dice tower. Yeah. And then once we could look through the cabins of the dice tower, I was like, well, look, now I want to see what's in those cabins. So then we have to bring lights into that cabin. So all of this stuff is sort of now it's become this fully lit um, dice tower where you can put, you know, the the the, the Kickstarter will come with sort of an, an LED light strip and a battery pack and you can run yeah. your LED lights through the cabin. And you know, it becomes, it also, it, it, it adds to the story. It adds to the story of ancient terrible things where the dice tower is, well, not the dice tower, but the riverboat is, in many ways, is the protagonist of the game. We're certainly the central uh, the central location in the game. Yeah. So to kind of expand the story through this dice tower was was quite fun to do and go, okay, what's what's in the captain's cabin? You know, if I look through the window, what, what's, what's lying on their bed and what's in the, and sort of design all those props. And of course, that's kind of, metastasized again during the Kickstarter campaign where people were like, well, we want to see props on this riverboat. So, so we've gone back to the punch boards and going, okay, well, how much space have we got left on these punch boards? And we've opened it up to the Kickstarter backers. And now we've got all sorts of props that we're going to add. We've got gaffs lying on the on the deck of the, the riverboat. We've got tentacles coming up the side. We've got yep. tires stuck on the front. So it's been a really fun central object to kind of to 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 sort of celebrate the game around um, and to be sort of a central focus. You know, it's this this thing that sort of sits in the middle of the game. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a fun project. Certainly, as the ambiance, and that is included in the deluxe version of the game, I think, and or you can buy it as an add-on, I think, right? So what we've done is we've split the we've split it up into a couple of tiers, but the deluxe is kind of sort of the all-in, um, which includes a robot dice tower, but it's obviously available as a separate as a separate product for, yeah. you know, for players who, who are buying the upgrade kit and they want it um, as a, just as an item. And of course, also once again, during the Kickstarter, a lot of people came onto the Kickstarter and said, look, I don't like this game. I'm not interested, but the riverboat rocks. How do I get the riverboat? So now we've tried to, to change the deck of the, of the riverboat so that there will be a version that's got the scenario matrix. It's sort of the dice matrix that you have in the game. Yeah. Cause you can sort of take your dice out of the dice tower and then put them on the front of the boat if you wanted to play it that way, for instance, but then to also have a deck that's blank and then make the, the riverboat something that can players can have as a separate dice tower that's not that's that's game um, uh, standalone that it can play it generically with any other um, yeah. adventure game. Yeah. No, oh, super cool. What are you guys working on after this? Like, so th this game is wrapping up in the next uh, the next day. Obviously, there's a lot of work and then getting that produced and your uh, timeline seem quite aggressive. So I think by the end of this year, you're actually shipping. Um, is there, as a publisher, are you have another title on, on, on the go or what, what's, what's next for you guys? Well, um, it's, it's going to be an interesting one is that, that as a small publisher, as an indie publisher, these games um, are largely the work of myself and the game designer. Yeah. Um, so every version of these games, they certainly, I feel like I'm trying to hit 80%, but there's always that 10%. And once the games have obviously in market and they've had a minimum print run, 
once they've been alive and they've been living in this space for a while, it's very interesting to see what players come back with and say, well, it would be wonderful if this could happen. And, and, and be, be, understand I'm not using the sort of audience as playtesters. We obviously play test the games aggressively, but once games have lived for many years, we like to go, well, I, I quite like going back to the materials. So the next mm -hmm. game is likely to be the second game that, that we did, which was a game called Snowblind. Um, race to the pole which was a very different it's, it doesn't have a fantasy theme at all it's in fact um sort of a survival an antarctic survival game based on the the amundsen robert scott's um, race for the south pole sort of 100 years ago um so that and that game i'd love to explore again I, i'm not going to give away too much at this point we've got yeah. some kind of very interesting ways of doing a second version of that um but it feels in some ways i'm sort of on a carousel and i'm now going back to the beginning and 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 starting to look at this material again. So, so that's likely to be the next project. No, oh, that's awesome. Well, again, I want to congratulate you on this, on, on this game for people that are listening. If you want to check this game out, uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes or quite frankly, you can just go to Kickstarter and search uh, ancient, terrible things. Uh, either way, we'll get you there. Uh, check it out. at the very least, check it out to see this, this dice tower. These guys have created this riverboat. looks awesome. The artwork is beautiful. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it's cool. And it's inspiring to, to talk to somebody in South Africa about their journey. And I want to thank you so much for your time, Rob, and wish you all the best in this coming year. Thanks, James. It was wonderful to chat about stuff. Thank you. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.